Book Four, Chapter Nine of Henrietta Temple. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Eaton. Henrietta Temple by Benjamin Disraeli. Book Four, Chapter Nine. In which Glastonbury finds that a serene temper does not always bring a serene life. Those quiet slumbers that the regular life and innocent heart of the good Glastonbury generally ensured were sadly broken this night as he lay awake meditating over the distracted fortunes of the Armine house. They seemed now to be most turbulent and clouded, and that brilliant and happy future in which of late he had so fondly indulged offered nothing but gloom and disquietude. Nor was it that the menaced disruption of those ties whose consummation was to restore the greatness and splendour of the family, and all the pain and disappointment, and mortification and misery that must be its consequence, that alone made him sorrowful. Glastonbury had a reverence for that passion which sheds such a lustre over existence, and is the pure and prolific source of much of our better conduct. The time had been when he, too, had loved, and with a religious sanctity worthy of his character and office, he had been for a long life the silent and hopeless votary of a passion almost ideal, yet happy, though he never told his love, and indeed, although the unconscious mistress of his affections had been long removed from that world where his fidelity was almost her only comfort, that passion had not waned, and the feelings that had been inspired by her presence were now cherished by her memory. His tender and romantic nature which his venerable grey hairs had neither dulled nor hardened, made him deeply sympathise with his unhappy pupil. The radiant image of Henrietta Temple, too, vividly impressed on his memory as it was, rose up before him. He recollected his joy that the chosen partner of his Ferdinand's bosom should be worthy of her destiny. He thought of this fair creature, perchance in solitude and sickness, a prey to the most mortifying and miserable emotions, with all her fine and generous feelings thrown back upon herself, deeming herself deceived, deserted, outraged, where she had looked for nothing but fidelity and fondness and support, losing all confidence in the world and the world's ways, but recently so lively with expectation and airy with enjoyment, and now aimless, hopeless, wretched, perhaps broken-hearted. The tears trickled down the pale cheek of Glastonbury, as he revolved in his mind these mournful thoughts, and almost unconsciously he wrung his hands as he felt his utter want of power to remedy these sad and piteous circumstances. Yet he was not absolutely hopeless. There was ever open to the pious Glastonbury one perennial source of trust and consolation. This was a fountain that was ever fresh and sweet, and he took refuge from the world's harsh courses and exhausting cares in its salutary flow and its refreshing shade, when, kneeling before his crucifix, he commended the unhappy Ferdinand and his family to the superintending care of a merciful omnipotence. The morning brought fresh anxieties. Glastonbury was at the place at an early hour, and found Ferdinand in a high state of fever. He had not slept an instant, was very excited, talked of departing immediately, and rambled in his discourse. Glastonbury blamed himself for having left him a moment, and resolved to do so no more. He endeavoured to soothe him, assured him that if he would be calm all would yet go well, and they would consult together 
what was best to be done, and that he would make inquiries after the Temple family. In the meantime he dispatched the servant for the most eminent physician of the county, but as hours must necessarily elapse before his arrival, the difficulty of keeping Ferdinand still was very great. Talk he would, and of nothing but Henrietta. It was really agonising to listen to his frantic appeals to Glastonbury to exert himself to discover her abode. Yet Glastonbury never left his side, and with promises, expressions of confidence, and the sway of an affected calmness, for in truth dear Glastonbury was scarcely less agitated than his patient, Ferdinand was prevented from rising, and the physician at length arrived. After examining Ferdinand, with whom he remained a very short space, this gentleman invited Glastonbury to descend, and they left the patient in charge of a servant. "'This is a bad case,' said the physician. "'Almighty God preserve him!' exclaimed the agitated Glastonbury. "'Tell me the worst. Where are Sir Ratcliffe and Lady Armine?' "'At Bath. They must be sent for instantly. Is there any hope?' "'There is hope, that is all.' I shall now bleed him copiously, and then blister, but I can do little. We must trust to nature. I am afraid of the brain. I cannot account for his state by his getting wet, or his rapid travelling. Has he anything on his mind? Much, said Glastonbury. The physician shook his head. It is a precious life, said Glastonbury, seizing his arm. My dear doctor, you must not leave us. They returned to the bedchamber. Captain Armine, said the doctor, taking his hand and seating himself on the bed. You have a bad cold and some fever. I think you should lose a little blood. Can I leave Armine today if I am bled? inquired Ferdinand eagerly. For go I must. I would not move today, said the doctor. I must indeed, I must. Mr. Glastonbury will tell you I must. If you set off early tomorrow, you will get over as much ground in four and twenty hours as if you went this evening, said the doctor, fixing the bandage on the arm as he spoke and nodding to Mr. Glastonbury to prepare the basin. "'Tomorrow morning,' said Ferdinand. "'Yes, tomorrow,' said the physician, opening his lancet. "'Are you sure that I shall be able to set off tomorrow?' said Ferdinand. "'Quite,' said the physician, opening the vein. The dark blood flowed sullenly. The physician exchanged an anxious glance with Glastonbury. At length the arm was bandaged up, a composing draught, with which... The physician had been prepared, given to his patient, and the doctor and Glastonbury withdrew. The former now left Armine for three hours, and Glastonbury prepared himself for his painful office of communicating to the parents the imminent danger of their only child. Never had a more difficult task devolved upon an individual than that which now fell to the lot of the good Glastonbury. In conducting the affairs of a family, labouring under such remarkable misconceptions as to the position and views of its various members. It immediately occurred to him that it was highly probable that Miss Grandison, at such a crisis, would choose to accompany the parents of her intended husband. What incident, under the present circumstances, could be more awkward and more painful? Yet how to prevent its occurrence? How crude to communicate the real state of such affairs at any time by letter? How impossible at the moment he was preparing the parents for the alarming, perhaps fatal illness of their child, to enter on such subjects at all, much more when the very revelation, at a moment which required all their energy and promptitude, would only be occasioning at Bath scenes scarcely less distracting and disastrous than those occurring at Armine. 
It was clearly impossible to enter into any details at present, and yet Glastonbury, while he penned the sorrowful lines and softened the sad communication with his sympathy, added a somewhat sly postscript, wherein he impressed upon Lady Armine the advisability, for various reasons, that she should only be accompanied by her husband. End of Book 4, Chapter 9